human rights are rights we have simply because we exist as human beings. They are not granted by any state. These universal rights are inherent to us all, regardless of nationality, sex, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, language, or any other status. They range from the most fundamental, the right to life, to those that make life worth living, such as the rights to food, education, work, health, and liberty, based on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, adopted by the UN General Assembly in 1948. Welcome to Delmarva Today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. It's clear that climate change poses many threats to our way of life here on this planet. One of the most obvious is the devastation caused by drought, seawater rise, and severe weather events. Little discussed, however, is the impact climate change is having on human rights. As necessary resources such as water become increasingly scarce, for example, what does it mean that they are intentionally diverted from vulnerable populations? In this last of my series of programs on climate change, Dr. Michael Allen returns to discuss the impact of global warming on human rights. Michael is joined by Madison Gonzalez, a graduate research assistant at the Virginia Modeling, Analysis, and Simulation Center at Old Dominion University. Madison's research work focuses on social stability in the wake of extreme events like environmental crises, sudden population increases, and pandemics. Michael Allen is a climate scientist and professor of geography in the Department of Political Science and Geography at Old Dominion University. Michael and Madison, Welcome to Delmarva today. Glad to be here. <laughs> well, thanks again to, uh, to both of you. Michael, there is a significant impact of climate change on uh, human rights. A two-minute look at our own borders, for example, gives you a great sense of the degradation of human rights and how quickly uh, that, can, uh, that can occur. But let me ask you first off, what are human rights? And, and what are the key concepts related to inequality and, and then uh, the pressures of migration? Sure, well, thanks again. Um... And Madison may chime into some of this, and so I may contextualize this in the in the, in the concept of of climate itself. And what we know is that, you know, climate stressors, climate change, 
And we can think about this in terms of, of water scarcity issues. We can think about this in terms of food security issues. We can think about just uh, livelihoods uh, in terms of subsistence farming, for instance, and, and, and way of lives. And I tell my students often when talking about these concepts that humans are species. And uh, species, when the environment changes, whether it's the, the marine environment for a lobster, for instance, right? If, if the water gets too warm for a lobster, what's that species do? Well, it moves, right? It, it moves away from the warm water to an environment that's much more conducive to uh, its, its well-being. Some species can adapt, right? They can consider resilience and modify their, their, their processes in terms of humans. So agriculture systems are a great example of, of planting new crops, for instance, that are more conducive to this new climate regime, if you will. Uh, and then the last option that species do or die. So species adapt, move, or die. That's really the only three things that species do. And so when we think about human migration, uh, we can also kind of think of this in the, the, the natural world dimension as well. As far as human rights, uh, Madison may weigh a little bit more into that discussion here specifically with some of her work in South Africa and help to describe that a little bit better. Yeah, so um, human rights are really going to be like the morals or norms that are accepted um, really to protect human livelihoods. And so a lot of my research focuses on South Africa and really the three-year drought period that they had from 2015 to 2018. And so in South Africa, you already have townships that have poor water infrastructure. So a lot of these societies use communal water taps um, where they kind of express a fear that these taps are very sanitary. So they express fears of maybe encountering a disease or things like that. Um, but then when you throw a three-year drought on top of it, which um, this was the near day zero drought where taps were threatened to be completely shut off. So then you think about how this disproportionately impacts these already marginalized populations that don't have the infrastructure. And I would also say um, the economic power to really change their situation. And this was in a time where the 1996 Bill of Rights in South Africa guaranteed equitable access to water for the entire population. So you can kind of see where having this unequal access to water through poor infrastructure. And then this three-year drought um, kind of creates an extra conflict there since there's no access or there's unequal access and now there's less water available. Harold, one last thing also, the, the Department of Defense calls climate change a threat multiplier. And what they mean by that is in of itself, climate change is not gonna cause migration necessarily, right? The, the economic systems, as Madison pointed out, the political systems that exist, and then you add on this drought, that is what often leads to the push factor of, of people moving to a new place. Well, one of the issues, uh, isn't it, um, uh, Michael and Madison, with, um, with human rights, is that there are often uh, legal uh, strictures that reduce the um, human rights violations or that kind of equalize uh, the rights that, uh, that people share. How does climate change uh, impact 
on uh, on these kind of legal strictures. Uh, let look at South Africa, for instance, and the availability of um, of water. What happened with uh, with people who are unable to access the same amount of water as uh, other sections of the city or of the area there? Yeah, so um, like I said, equitable access to water is a constitutional right in South Africa. But then you saw during the day zero drought period, the more affluent communities, which are going to be the predominantly white communities in the urban center, they were able to um, pay companies to put boreholes on their land so that they could access water and uh, the groundwater. Um, they were also able to bulk purchase bottled water supplies and things like that. Um, they could fill their pools so that they had that water stored for themselves. Whereas the people that were in the townships, they don't have um, the extra money available to go and bulk purchase these supplies. So then they're basically left to rely on the government to provide some type of service to them. But um, some people may not be aware is that South Africa has had a pretty long history of what they call service delivery protest. Um, and this largely happens in the townships where it's typically about water, electricity, and sanitation. So basically the government is failing to provide adequate infrastructure in these areas. So now they're relying on the government to provide them a service during an extreme drought when the government has already been failing to provide these services. The government did at some point provide communal taps in different areas, but some newspaper articles that I have collected and read say that these communal taps were kind of put far away. So townships don't have adequate transportation to connect them to the city or to where these communal taps were placed. So yes, the government did provide some type of community water but it was very difficult for these mar already marginalized populations to reach this new water supply that the government provided. So I guess maybe, maybe you can see here how climate puts a stress already on government failures um, and kind of raises tensions for those populations that have been suffering for a while. Well, just for a, a, a little background, Madison, uh, you use the term in the township. What is the difference between the township? What is that? And, and how is the township different than uh, the rest of the city or the area? Yeah, so um, during the apartheid era, so that was 46 years of racial segregation and white superiority, white domination or white rule um, in South Africa. So the apartheid government what they did was they established townships that were on the outskirts of the urban area. And so these townships are specifically for um, the African colored and Asian populations. And then the minority white population was prioritized at the city center. So they have um, better infrastructure and um, access to services. Whereas these townships, um, they don't have very good access to services or infrastructure. Typically they're very poorly built. They tend to be overcrowded because people from like the more rural areas, when they migrate, most of the time they migrate to these townships. So considering 
they were already poorly built and suffering in that way and overcrowded already. Um, now you have migration coming from the rural areas. And a lot of time this is due to um, drought situations of now they're trying to move closer to economic opportunity. Is there a significant uh, level of in-migration in, uh, in South Africa? I don't know the exact numbers, to be honest. Um, one thing I do know is that a lot of time when it comes to environmental displacement, a lot of times, or majority of the time, that happens within the country. So yes, you would see more of the rural to urban migration happening there. Do you see that, Michael, um, here in, in the States? Is there, uh, there was at one time during the 30s and, and the Dust Bowl era, there was significant population movement in, uh, in the United States. And then later in, in, the, in the 50s, there was out-migration from uh, the South to the larger cities of the North. Is that still happening? And what what is the impact of uh, climate change on, on those uh, internal movements of populations? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. And I think the best example of, of this more recently is Hurricane Sandy. I'm sorry, Hurricane Katrina. I get my hurricanes mixed up. It's too many of them. Uh, Hurricane Katrina in 05 uh, that many listeners likely remember the, the imagery that we saw of that major storm, really the first major storm in quite a while to, to impact the, the southern coast of, of Louisiana. And we've had hurricanes there in the past. We're going to have them in the future, fine. Um, but the imagery that we saw of, 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 of water pouring into the city, the levee systems uh, failed, Army Corps issues there, uh, heavy rain, fine. The forecast was great, ironically enough. A catastrophic Category 5 hurricane making a direct uh, beeline for the city of New Orleans. But if you look at the population uh, statistics after Hurricane Katrina, something like 300,000, don't quote me on that number, uh, people never returned. And so the displacement of those people across the entire U.S., from Alaska, Hawaii, New York, uh, and Virginia, people were displaced. So that's the most recent example of, of, of an environmental structure like that. I do think it's, it's somewhat, um, it creates pause if you think about some of the rapidly uh, growing cities, for in instance, we think about Phoenix, it's a desert, Las Vegas, it's a desert, right? Miami, it's on the coast. And so you have sea level rise potential impacts moving forward. And how do you consider water resources as the example we've been talking about in a place like Phoenix or uh, Las Vegas with a growing population? The inequities uh, internally are, uh, a, they potentially exist uh, moving forward. So you, you did mention earlier threat uh, multiplier. Would, would you go back to that concept again, Michael, and talk a, a little bit about uh, climate change as a threat multiplier in terms of, of, of human right? And what are the human rights that uh, are getting impacted here? Yeah, we talked with Madison about water, and that's very, that was a very, very clear example of abrogating a human, a human right. Yeah, and, and uh, it's an interesting question. You know, do we have, do human rights exist? Some of what of a philosophical question, and I'm not getting into the philosophical nature of that, 
But I think the South Africa case provides a great example by which the state, the government policy outlines, yes, you have a human right to, to water and the nuances associated with how you get that water. Is that water clean? Can you drink it? What have you? The, the threat multiplier piece, and this was defense secretary under uh, George Bush, uh, the second, second Bush uh, era, and he was the first person to coin that threat multiplier. And the reason for that was that, and Dr. David Titley, who's at Penn State University, a former rear admiral of the U.S. Navy, has a, a series of TED Talks on this issue as well. And what he describes is uh, climate change makes bad places worse, meaning that if I'm in a desert and desertification is, is growing as a consequence of our warming planet, uh, that desert environment becomes more extreme. And so be careful of the environmental determinism of this, that a desert environment does not lead to quote unquote extremism from a, a political perspective, for instance, but it certainly creates conditions by which water uh, availability may be reduced, the ability to, to care for your cattle, for, for your livestock, your livelihood is consequently uh, affected. And again, if your livelihood is affected, if I'm thirsty, I'm going to go find water, right? I might not want to take it from Madison, but if I need water to survive, there's going to be conflict there. Madison's right? in trouble if you need water to survive. And I don't know. Survive, I think Madison, and she has some. I think Madison would take me take for the water, but the point of the matter is, is, is you know, we, we act in many ways in our, our own self-interest. And how do we address this water? I think water is the best example of, of a human rights, right? We can think about this also in terms of air quality. Look at places like New Delhi, for instance, or the recent wildfires in the Pacific Northwest. You know, last summer we had the worst air quality on the world in the United States. And that was not a function of factories like Pittsburgh in the 1950s but it was a function of the wildfires, which were then, then you know, again, attributed in some way by, by warming of our planet. So the, the, the commonality between human rights and environment, it's, it's, it's complex, certainly. And this is why it's interesting looking at these different disciplines of policy and economics and uh, human rights. And as a climatologist, sometimes I don't know what the words are coming out of those disciplines. Like I don't understand the, 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 the technicalities, but to address the 21st century challenges, we certainly need these, these different disciplines addressing a challenge like human rights and the environment. Another thing in addition to that um, is that, so as you said, it makes situations worse. So um, where there's extreme poverty, it's going to make that worse. Um, you'll start to see competition over resources and things of that sort. So there's going to be different levels of violence. So, you know, there's the physical violence that Michael kind of hinted at of like stealing water from me or something like that. But something I might add a different perspective here. Um, and again, this is in the context of the drought in South Africa was that while protests and things like that can turn violent, and I'm not saying that they don't, but something I have begun to notice during my research is that some of this, these um, protests and demonstrations you're seeing because of the climate, they're not necessarily violent, as most people would think. It's really a solidarity movement of people trying to say, hey, like we have a human right here for water and we need to hold our government accountable 
So they're kind of using these solidarity movements as a form of security for themselves and their community. Let me ask you, uh, Michael, another aspect of of human rights and the the denial of of human rights. The residual effect of climate change on uh, population movement is the sense that the borders of um, a variety of of countries uh, are experiencing amazing pressure on them, including our own southern border. The the pressure is, uh, is really significant. And I would wonder as one approaches the border and the pressures on the border, what kind of human rights uh, pressures are put on, uh, on people um, at, uh, at the border? Can you, uh, can you comment at all, or either one of you, on um, the pressures that uh, are on human rights at uh, at the borders. Madison have may have some more comments on this as well, but I, I would say that regardless of the borders, the, the stresses on human systems uh, by and large are what do you need to survive? Right, we need water, we need air, we need food of some sort, and so we can think about water is probably the primary one uh, of movement at this point too much, too little, wrong place, wrong time, uh, how that water falls from the atmosphere, how that water is contained and, and absorbed and, and safeguarded from a, a, a system standpoint, whether it be a aquifer or a, a river or a, a cistern on your porch, for instance. Um, but we also, again, the, the food systems of, of your livestock or your, your, your agricultural produce uh, being grown. And then the air. I think the air is interesting. I wouldn't say it's leading to migration or movement of the sort, but it certainly raises important human rights concerns. And that's really what is pushing China in particular to address uh, the issue of climate change is, is not climate, uh, not economic uh, superiority, for instance, but it's really a health-driven initiative to safeguard the, the health and well-being of the populations that live there and have consequently over the last 20 years or so really drawn attention to the air quality concerns that exist in, in many urban centers in China. Madison? Yeah, um, I'll say um, environmental displacement is the next frontier is what some people are saying. Um, so different climate stressors are motivating a lot more migration. And so if you think of now the host country, um, their government now has to provide more supplies for a growing population. So if you think, you know, this could be an instance where they already have limited supplies, maybe food supplies or water supplies or things of that sort. Sometimes, even though we have the um, UN Bill on Human Rights, this becomes a little bit of a gray area when it comes to what we call non-citizens. So refugees or stateless persons, where whatever state they're in, they're supposed to have um, these protections and access to these things. But sometimes you'll see that really they're just given the bare minimum. So it's not enough to live a decent life. It's just the bare minimum for survival. So um, I think that is one potential threat to human rights there. 
how do we build some kind of equitable capacity here, uh, Michael? As we look about the, the, the economic, to that point, uh, the impacts of climate change, for instance, uh, 2020, we had in the U.S., this is, we had, uh, I think it was 22 billion disasters uh, exceeding $600 billion. That's a wildfire. That's a couple of tropical storm costs, right? Being proactive is much more cost-effective than being reactive. But in terms of, of, of building equitable responses, some of, some of the research that I'm thinking of is, is my own in looking at heat waves. And what we know is heat waves, again, increase frequency, duration, intensity, but communities experience heat waves differently. In, in Norfolk, for instance, we have communities, parts of our city that are 15, nearly 20 degrees warmer Fahrenheit than other parts of our city because of uh, the built environment, because of the tree canopy that exists, because of the concrete jungle that absorbs and re-radiates energy differently. And so what we find is that within our cities, we have uh, populations that are much more vulnerable to heat waves as no fault of their own, but as a consequence of uh, long-term policies, things like redlining, for instance. So in order to address resilience to human rights with respect to climate change, we can't just look at the climate system. We have to consider these human systems, whether that be through policy, whether that be through economics, whether that be not only a historical look at things like redlining of the past, but also looking forward as to how do we plan our cities moving forward or our communities moving forward in the face of future stressors. We know that the stressors are going to be, but the political, economic, and the human system will to address that is often the, the missing ingredient, if that makes sense. Well, it does make sense. And, and human rights violations are, are, are often based on some kind of political aspect of, of the way human beings organize themselves to, uh, to, govern, uh, to govern themselves. Spot on. I was going to use the example of the Johnstown flood, and I'm from southwest Pennsylvania, so this is a little bit close to home perhaps, but many listeners are probably familiar, at least in some way, of, of the Johnstown flood, and I forget the exact years, 18-something. And what we know is that uh, the, the communities that were impacted by the flooding were not the quote unquote, rich upper class, because the rich upper class lived up on the hill, looking down upon the workers that worked in the valley in Johnstown. And so we have historic examples, 100 plus years ago, of a major catastrophic flood event, not just one, but multiple, because we, after, after we had one flood event, we still didn't get it. We didn't build resilience. We didn't think about equity. We didn't think about these other intersectionalities. And so then fast forward to 2021, we have a similar kind of uh, power structure, uh, a similar economic system structure, and the differences within those systems accentuate or add, add another threat multiplier, if you will, with respect to environmental displacement, for example. Well, I think that's, uh, that's really an, an excellent uh, point. We go back for a moment to South Africa as well, because what you're saying, Michael, I believe is that in certain uh, communities, certain uh, population groups were uh, uh, forced uh, literally to live in, uh, in undesirable areas of, uh, of the community. And 
it turns out now that those areas are susceptible uh, to um, difficulties caused by, uh, by climate uh, change. For instance, um, South Africa and the apartheid um, system. The redlining is the best example here in the U.S. more recently, 1930s federal policy that actually prevented uh, communities of color uh, from obtaining uh, vertical mobility and economic system, that we actually graded neighborhoods based upon how, quote unquote, desirable they were. And the more desirable they were, the more white people could get mortgages and the less desirable, so these D-rated, red-lined communities in, in our cities. And this is not a, a southern phenomenon. This is not a northern phenomenon. This is across the board. So federal government policies in the 1930s uh, that we have these red-lined communities that still to this day are predominantly African-American brown population, predominantly lack of tree canopy, predominantly where you have water quality issues, predominantly where you have flood risk and mold vulnerability. And so these, these intersectionalities uh, are, are rooted in past narratives uh, of, of racial injustice and, and equity, uh, certainly. And, and, and what I hear both you, you and Madison um, saying is that uh, the, the difficulties uh, experienced in, in these kind of red line communities is exacerbated by climate change. Michael and Madison, thank you very much for joining me today on uh, Delmarva today. I greatly appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. <laughs>